My name is Stuart Robbins, and welcome to a bonus episode of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast, which I do from time to time to cover random bits of astronomy, geology, or physics-based pseudoscience, or in this case, real science. This episode is for September 26th, 2016. The topic I'm bringing you today is an interview I did last week with Dr. Casey Liss about his observations of X-rays from Pluto. When I first saw the story hit the news, I immediately thought that certain pseudoscientists would use this as evidence that Pluto is artificially constructed because otherwise how could it possibly be emitting such high-energy radiation? Given that I was headed to a New Horizons science team meeting and Casey would be there, he gave me an hour of his time and we recorded outside on the Stanford University campus using my portable cellular telecommunications device. While the audio may not be perfect, I think that the conversation will give you a lot of insight into this discovery. I'm sitting here. So how did Dr. Carrie Liz? Thank Dr. you for pronouncing my name correctly. We're here at Stanford University in Palo Alto, California, talking about x-rays from Pluto. All right, well, you did the intro perfectly fine, so let's <laughs> let's get straight into the question. So, okay, we will. So you've already mentioned to me as we were talking today at the science team meeting, the first thing you thought of when you heard of x-rays from Pluto was aliens. I must admit this is the first time I've ever thought of that. I never so, thought that was an obvious conclusion. So it's not that I thought aliens. I mm-hmm. thought there are people who are going to say x-rays means aliens. So Absolutely. so let's let's actually start at the beginning. What did you find? Is Pluto actually, quote-unquote, emitting x-rays? I see. So, okay, so that's, that's a very good question. So it actually gets right to the heart question. of it. Yeah. So, first of all, what we found was we, we used the Chandra X-ray Telescope and the fact that New Horizons was fined by Pluto in, on July 14, 2015. Uh, we used that to motivate getting time on the Chandra X-ray Telescope to look at Pluto. And Pluto this is a space-based telescope. And this is a space-based telescope. It orbits around the Earth um, in a, a long-needed orbit and takes it a ways away from the Earth. But it is basically, it's earthocentric. So if when Chandra looks at something, think of it as basically an X-ray telescope at Earth. It's a good approximation. What was crazy about this was that we've seen X-rays from everything out to Saturn. And I think there's maybe 50 X-rays ever seen from Saturn, mostly from its disk, a little bit from its rings. And when but you we, say from, is it? do you think the object is actually emitting them, ah. or is this... Okay, well, I'll hold that question. No, no, I'll, actually, I'll get right to that. <laughs> okay. So we've seen it out to Saturn. We haven't seen anything. Uranus and Neptune, so Pluto is a real leap. So when you see X-rays, it's not aliens. X-ray emission from in the solar system is pretty much all driven by the sun. The big picture way to look at it is the sun does all the work. The sun either emits X-rays straight from its surface, because it's a hot boiling ball of, of hot gas, and if it's 5,700 degrees color temperature, it's going to have a finite amount of X-rays, as well as the fact it also has magnetic fields that break apart and reform as it, as it rotates, which not only create high-energy photons, but they also heat the atmosphere on the sun called the corona to a million degrees, and they make highly stripped minor ions, which we're going to get back to. That's what's happening at Pluto. So the sun either makes X-rays that come straight out from the sun, like a light bulb, and then they can reflect off of bodies in the solar system, and we see that. We see that those 50 photons I was talking about from Saturn are probably mostly reflected. Okay. And yes, we have a plane going overhead. <laughs> yes. As I said, we are sitting outside of Stanford. So the three what method mechanisms we know of X-ray generation in the solar system, which is great right to your question, are reflection of solar X-rays. Okay. Auroral precipitation of solar wind ions. So basically, the Earth has a big, strong magnetic field. So solar wind would come in near the Earth. It gets the charged particles of the solar wind get trapped in the magnetic field and get channeled along the lines. They spiral around them, and they get focused onto the poles. 
and they dump into the poles, and then they hit the atmosphere there, and that's where you get your aurora. And the aurora can also emit x-rays because these are highly energetic particles. So it's the particles from the sun interacting yeah. with basically the magnetic field of the planet or right. the atmosphere of the planet, right. both. And okay. important point with is not only would you get x-rays from this, but you get auroral emission. You get what we call air glow and auroral emission. Okay. And one of the, we'll cut to the chase. New Horizons had instruments to look for this at Pluto and didn't see it. Okay. We didn't have a magnetic field measurement measure, but we believe that there wasn't any magnetic field anyway. Regardless of that, the UV spectrometer called ALICE on New Horizons did not see any auroral emission. So we know there's no aurora and there should be no x-rays associated with an aurora at Pluto. So scratch that one off. Okay. Second one is reflection. Well, we thought about maybe Pluto could be reflecting either from its disk or possibly from the nice haze layer around it. We've got all these suspended particles. If some of them, the way you can really be a good x-ray scatterer is not just be a solid surface. If you're really big, that helps. But if your little particle is the, the same size as the wavelength of the light, you're really, really good. It's called resonant scattering. You're really good at scattering light. So we know there's a haze. What if the haze particles are 10 to 100 angstroms in size? Um, but it works out for two reasons. One, there just isn't enough. There is enough atmosphere, and we can we know what kind of reflected light we saw from New Horizons. But also, when if I showed you a spectrum of the X-rays we saw, and compare it, we know what the spectrum of the X-rays is coming from the sun. And we shouldn't have just seen 300 to 600 EV photons. We should have seen 600 to 1,000, even 1,000 to 2,000. We saw none of those. So when you say the spectrum of X-rays, because uh, I have a pretty general listening audience with a huge background, uh, huge range of backgrounds. So. By spectrum, it's just like spectrum of optical light, only it's X-ray. So it's different energy levels, different right. wavelengths of X-rays. You know what that emission is from the sun, and so you knew what to look for right. at Pluto. It's the same way that when you look at, um, um, we're looking at a building across the street that has, oh, it's a sandstone building. And we know the sun's spectrum. And we, we're seeing that building in reflected light. Same, okay, it's optical light, just as you were asking. And we should be able, if we had a spectrometer, and I'm going to use a Star Trek term, if we measured the energy signature of the photons, which is another way of saying spectrum, if we measured the energy signature of the photons, it should look like the energy signature of the sun, the light that's coming from the sun, modulo of a little bit of absorption that that sandstone does. It has color, so it's going to be a little bit changed, but not much. Same thing for Pluto. So Pluto not only looks, the x-rays we saw were like a factor of 100 to 1,000 more than we'd expect be based on what we see, the X-rays we see reflected from Europa, and from Io, Jupiter's moons, and Callisto, and so that was one reason. There's just too many, and two is the energy signature is wrong. Okay, so you said there are three sources of X-rays: one's from the Sun, one's from interactions with the planet's magnetic field, and the other was actually coming from the surface itself right. in some way. And what you saw with Chandra was you saw too many x-rays for it to just be from the sun and the spectrum effectively of, of x-rays was different from what it would be from the sun therefore oh we, we have to be careful so okay from photons that are emitted directly from the sun the third thing source of x-rays in the solar system is what we call charge exchange it sounds like a, a vague term and i'll explain it okay so i mentioned that atmosphere on the sun that's a million degrees it's created by magnetic field of breaking apart and reconnecting, we call it magnetic reconnection, which, and we know the sun has a corona. It's the thing you see when the solar eclipse, mm -hmm. it's that vague atmosphere that kind of, but we also know it's a million degrees. Now compare that to the temperature of the surface of the sun, which is 5,700 degrees. It's a lot hotter, but it's also a lot, it's very diffuse and tenuous. And so there's a lot of energy getting dumped in very little gas. If you want to think about it, think of it as a hot boil, a, a extremely hot atmosphere around the sun. A million degrees Kelvin is 
plenty enough to take most of the electrons off of any material we know. You know, gas phase, things aren't going to be solid or liquid at that temperature. And it's enough energy you can actually strip off electrons and you wind up ionizing things to very high levels. So what, it did, what I'm getting at is this is the source of what we call the solar wind that permeates the whole solar system. So, and the solar wind is what creates that and falls onto the, on the magnetic poles and makes the aurora. In the solar wind, which is mostly protons and alpha particles, helium nuclei, there's also a small fraction of, of ions made of carbon and nitrogen and oxygen, sulfur and iron and magnesium are the most common, and neon. And these species are, again, because they're so hot at a million degrees Kelvin, they've lost almost all their electrons. There's, not, there's only one in t uh, 1,000 compared to protons, but they are so, uh, if you use a chemical term, because I'm a chemist in a former life, they're extremely oxidizing. They're very hungry for electrons. They're more oxidizing than any bleach or any chlorine or any fluorine you ever ran into. If they can find a neutral gas or atom or molecule, they will rip electrons off of it. The electron goes over from the neutral molecule, usually into the n equals 4, n equals 5 state, into an excited state on the ion, and then it de-excites, and that's where we get the and can get an X-ray. So we get characteristic energy X-rays at energies that come from at 300 to 600 eV that come from carbon plus five going to carbon plus four, of nitrogen plus six going to nitrogen plus five. Okay, so let me try to summarize to see if I understand. Because I am not a chemist in a former life. I took okay. one chemistry class in high school, and I said that's it. So you have X-rays that can be from the sun, or you have X-rays that can be, this is your third source, you have x-rays that are produced because of processes from the sun. Where because you the have, sun has baked these things and made a solar wind that streams out a highly ionized particle. And those particles then, as soon as they can latch onto an electron, mm -hmm. then when that electron is latched onto, mm -hmm. and then it loses energy inside of that atom effectively, that can emit an X-ray. Yes. So okay. this is an extremely strong process. It's charge exchange is very, very likely. The, the, the ion and the molecule don't have to even hit each other. They can just be nearby. Okay. And by the way, so let me give you a tiny chemistry lesson. Think of a rocket. You're literally taking oxygen. You pick liquid oxygen, and typical rockets, you take what's called a reductant. A source, oxygen likes electrons. It grabs them. It, it's very hungry for them. It wants two more. Anything that can give up electrons uh, that we call a reducing agent, uh, that's what you know is fuel. It can be gasoline, it can be kerosene, it can be hydrazine, it can be uh, natural gas. That is basically, all you're doing is talking what we call a redox reaction. Oxygen grabs the electrons, rips them off of the other molecule, and it gets very happy and, gets to, and emits energy, goes to a lower energy state. At the same time, the mother molecule again goes to a lower energy state. So you can take something like methane, which is CH4 and O2, and you're going to burn that methane, as you know. You're going to turn and make it into CO2 and water. And that gives off a huge amount of energy. We're roughly seeing the same kind of chemistry. An oxygen plus seven ion can come along, find a methane coming off of Pluto, grab an electron from it, turn it into a CH4 plus, and it, then it grabs that electron and de-excites. So this is a very common process. It's very energetic. It's very favorable to happen. Okay, blah, blah, blah. So that's what you wanted. That's the basic of what happened. We have now seen charges change at Mars and at Venus at more than 30 comets whenever we look at them. Jupiter as well. Saturn, not yet. So we see it all over the solar system. We know it happens. Okay. We also see it at the Earth, I should say, too. So basically, then, if I can go back to the beginning to try to yeah. figure out where we were, okay. where did I ask the question? Um, mm -hmm. It was, the question was, 
what did you find is Pluto actually emitting x-rays? And so basically there are three sources of x-rays in the solar system. Right. Option two, the interaction with magnetic field is completely out for Pluto because right. there's no magnetic field. Didn't expect to have a magnetic field. Option one is basically reflecting solar x-rays, right. which we've seen out to Saturn. Right. You did not see this at Pluto because the spectrum was wrong. Right. What you did see at Pluto was a different spectrum, which is a spectrum that you would expect given this third option of basically stuff that's stripped from the sun, sapping energy, and emitting x-rays in the process right. from when it interacts with exactly. something. Exactly. And this is highly plausible because Pluto is losing gas. We know that Pluto has what we call an escape rate. Its atmosphere is slowly leaking away into space. Now, unlike a comet, which I've studied for more than 20 years now, comets, once they are made of ice and, and rock and dusty, part of, dust like particles of rock, and as soon, when they get close to the sun, they start boiling. That ice starts subliming, and it contrains the dust with it. It goes off, and as soon as a gas molecule evaporates from a comet, it's gone. A comet is so small, it has no gravity, it just, it just goes. And comets make these giant, diffuse atmospheres that can be millions of kilometers in radius. They plow through the solar wind, we're going to get lots of x-rays. Pluto is big enough, it's about a thousand times bigger, somewhere between a 500 and a thousand times bigger than your average comet we see near us, that it can actually hold most of its atmosphere. So it has what we call an exobase, or think of it just as a, it's sheathed in an atmosphere that's gravitationally bound. But it's also small enough at the same time that it can lose a little bit of its atmosphere. The hottest gas molecules can boil off. For you fancy scientists out there, it's called assisted genes escape, and maybe you didn't need to hear that. <laughs> The point I think maybe 2% of the audience might. Okay. And they like that. <laughs> so. so the Earth is actually um, losing very little of its atmosphere. We're big enough that we hold almost all of it. But we also, to turn it around, we've lost all the hydrogen that was ever on the Earth. The Earth first formed, it was had a much more hydrogen to methane-rich atmosphere, but all the really light stuff, and also helium, um, it all boiled off because it's small enough and light enough that it could run away even in our gravity field. Okay, so yeah, Pluto, we're on what, like our third or fifth atmosphere or something on Earth? Yes. Okay, that'll be a future podcast episode. <laughs> so Pluto, on the other hand, is small enough that it can lose even its present-day nitrogen methane very slowly. Now, but this is quick enough that it actually not only has a sheet in atmosphere, but it also probably has a giant cloud around it. And as I'm going to talk about a little bit, probably a tail leading away from the sun. And that is where the solar wind can find neutrals, which it's very hungry for because they have electrons. It can, if you want to think about it in chemical terms, it can burn them. It can grab electrons, and at the same time, rather it burns them, it emits x-rays. So that's what's going on, and that's what's creating the x-rays. So I guess that answers my second question. Um, why were you looking in the first place? Uh, mm -hmm. Or more specifically, Robert wanted to know, why did you expect or think that they might be there in the first place? Have you seen other planetary bodies not emitting, but... I guess, x-rays from its vicinity mm -hmm. based on this kind of interaction? The answer is yes, so that's why you were looking for it. Exactly, them. and since I helped, I discovered, or helped discover, if you look at mine, I'm, I'm credit for the discover of x-rays from comets 20 years ago. I'm sitting next to someone famous. Yes, you can go look it up. Oh, wait, uh, so that must mean, you know James McKinney, right? Oh, no. <laughs> Listeners of the podcast can go back, and uh, I've discussed uh, some of James McKinney's claims in the past. So, um, anyway, so... No, let, let me be more positive. I encountered James McKinney when we were working on the Deep Impact Project. Pro project. I was in one of the, the science team members. And Deep Impact was where we launched a spacecraft that had a projectile that impacted into Comet Temple 1. 
mm-hmm. to look at the crater and see what happened. July 4, 2005, its idea was to actually dig down and expose material that hadn't seen the light of day since the beginning of the solar system and see how that crater formed and see how we, if we could learn about how the comet was put together, what its mechanical strength. It's the equivalent of you going to the, the beach and pounding sand, trying to pound a hole in sand to learn how strong this, what the sand is made of and how strong it is. In physics, we would call that because we couldn't bring a sample home. We did the, instead, uh, we did a scattered experiment. Okay, so long story short is he wrote me and said, I'm very worried that you're going to... Uh, one of the, the first question we got from almost everybody in the public was, one, were we going to break the comet apart if we hit it? Two, if we broke it apart, would it fall on the Earth? This was a very common question. It sounds like the Elkhart mission in 2009 where NASA was bombing the moon. Yep. Okay. So he wrote, he asked a slightly different question. Was he figured we would hit the comet and it would be a massive explosion and comets are made of antimatter. And I thought this was very interesting, but I also didn't necessarily like his theory. However, I, even at my age, I'm 54, I believe that if you look at the way science is supposed to be done, you know, the scientific method as we're all taught as kids, is that you're supposed to create a theory and you test it with facts. If it doesn't fit the known facts, then you have to discard it. Many of our colleagues, where we work is they immediately go to the, oh, that's, that's a crappy theory or that's not a good idea because they know already, but they don't, the, the process gets cut short. Yep. What I did with James McKinney was say, okay, I'm not sure I believe your argument, but if it's true, then we should be seeing electron, pro, positron annihilation emission. We should see comets in the gamma ray. And when I looked in 96 when we found the X-rays. I also looked using the gamma ray observatory. We looked for gamma rays from comets. We never saw them. So I wrote him back and said, okay, maybe this worked, but you have to explain the fact that we do not see any antimatter-matter annihilation emission, even just from a normal comet sitting there. So I don't think you're right. He didn't like that. And after that, he actually started flaming me in his blog. But to me, that was good, reasonable science. I had no problem with the way he gave me his theory. And I wasn't trying to diss him or anything, but unless a theory fits the facts, as I already said, this has actually come to light again for the, the alien architecture star just recently, which I've actually published on. And oh, this is uh, Hanny's star? The, or Tabby's. Tabby's, Tabby star, and the Kepler blah, blah, blah numbers. KIC, uh, you want me to quote it? No, it's okay. Uh, <laughs> oh, if, 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 you can, if you really want to. I've worked on it enough. I just call it KIC, I think, in my uh, K- podcast. KIC stands for Kepler. Um, in, um, no. Oh, KOI is Kepler Object of Interest. KIC is actually when there's a known light curve and they've actually found okay. something that's important. Anyway, um, 286452. Um, the interesting thing was that it clearly has a ridiculously large light curve, so it looks like 20% of the star's light has to be blocked. I'll make this short because you probably want to get back to Pluto. The point is that um, Jason Wright, after looking at this, propo- proposed the idea, a theory, that there were alien architectures, something blocking out in permanent orbit, like a Dyson sphere, something so big it could actually occult. Well, I didn't have a problem with the theory. What I had a problem with was we hadn't necessarily eliminated all the natural known theories before we went to the aliens. So we, we, we actually used his idea, and we went and made spectral observations looking for some the heat signature, something that would absorb starlight and re-emit it in the infrared, heat radiation. Same way rocks warm up, you and I are warm, and we emit thermal IR. We didn't see it. Nobody has seen it. It looks just like a star. So it can't be anything permanently in orbit around us. Right, because you're going to heat up, you're going to emit infrared. Right. And I think the that energy this, has to go somewhere. You right. absorb it in the optical, it has to be re-emitted. In the, in Unless the, you want to then go for a special pleading where you're like, well, it's actually super advanced material that can reabsorb all its infrared. Well, I, mean, <laughs> I have actually wondered about that as a super mirror, but then somehow you still have... Then the th- problem is, 
if you just think about simple energy, if we call it thermodynamics, energy budget, if you keep absorbing energy and absorbing energy, you're going to heat up really hot and you're going to melt and boil. So you have no, to unless dump, you, you use it. You have to you have to use it somehow. You yeah. have to dump it or you have to use it, but you still have to get rid of it because even when, energy doesn't get destroyed when we use it, it turns into waste heat. So when you drive your car, you brake, and when you do those brakes, you're using the friction of the brakes, but that mechanical energy goes into heat in the brakes and it gets dissipated. It doesn't just go poof. It's kind of like energy gets sloshed between bank accounts, if you will. All right, so anyway, the point was is I actually like interesting ideas. I'd love to meet aliens if they landed in my backyard, and I'd like to shake their hand. I have not heard or seen any good definitive proof, because okay. I like science fiction just like you do. And I'm, you know, we're going to, the universe is too big. There's got to be other folks out there. But we haven't, I haven't seen anything that's definitive yet. Okay, so, and that's, but the exploration aspect is fantastic. And if you think about it, if you never dream big, we never go anywhere. But uh, what, I, what I, as a skeptical scientist or as a practicing scientist, those dreams and ideas and our imagination and our theories have to be guided by what we know and what we can observe at the same time. Because we can imagine, I can imagine, you know, giant butterflies coming here and taking us away to the moon. It's never going to happen because that's not reality. Um, a warp drive in Star Trek, for example, I'd love to, but we don't have any evidence right now that you can go faster than the speed of light. It's a nice right. idea. Okay. All right. So back to Pluto. We've already covered the instrumentation. So it was Chandra X-ray Observatory. And uh, my fourth question was sort of what's the current explanation for this? So you have the explanation. It's this charge exchange. Called charge, but now I haven't. There's one thing I want to add. Okay. The reason why it was so important that it was during the Horizons flyby epoch was charge exchange requires both the solar wind and the neutrals coming from a source. With, with New Horizons, we could measure the amount of gas flowing out of Pluto. Okay, because there are two instruments. No, wait, wait. So I guess three instruments that were relevant. That's right. So there was uh, Swap and Pepsi, which are basically charged particle detectors. Mm-hmm. Um, and those have been operating basically since the mission started right. um, because they're measuring solar wind the whole way through. They don't. They barely cared that we were at Pluto. They were just like, Pluto kind of sucks because we have to turn our instruments off because we're doing all these weird maneuvers. <laughs> it's just a little more complicated than that, but yeah. It's a little more. I'm simplifying it grossly. I, I don't mean to say the particles and plasma. No, I'm not, no, you're not, because I'm actually going to talk about the swap tail. Okay. That's going to be important to this story. All right. Uh, well, so then there was also um, the ALICE instrument, which you already said, which was a UV spectrometer. So this is basically uh, imaging spectrometer. So this is sort of like... Um, uh, if you have uh, one of those diffraction grading glasses, they sometimes sell them at fireworks <laughs> stores That's right. where fireworks are legal, where you put those on and basically you can you see every object, but it's sort of, you see it duplicated a couple different times. You see it in co- different colors. In That's different right. colors. So that's sort of what an imaging spectrometer is. That's actually exactly what an imaging spectrometer mm-hmm. is. And Alice works in the ultraviolet, and Alice would also be able to detect stuff of interest to this story. It would be able to tell you what kind of gas molecules are in the atmosphere. In fact, it did. It told us about methane and about the, about the nitrogen and where they are in the atmosphere. So that's why it was important to do this when New Horizons was going by is because we had this instrumentation that could directly measure basically the makeup of the escaping atmosphere that would be interacting with the solar wind. And the, and the amount of the atmosphere okay. leaving, and at the same time also the amount of the solar wind, because Swap and Pepsi measure it directly. Because so, the solar wind varies. So we actually can say x-rays made is equal to some, some proportional constant times the amount of neutral gas times the amount of solar wind ion flux. So, so, so you had three parts of that four-part yeah, equation, so right. you were able to then get out the constant. Chandra can always look at Pluto. It can do it whenever time and measure x-rays, but it can't measure in situ right at Pluto 
the escaping get neutral gas and it can't measure the solar wind. So here's where it gets interesting. This tardy exchange mechanism seems to fit all the facts except for one that we have to we, we have an issue with. Um, we know the number of X-rays coming off of Pluto. If you we know how many we got in Chandra in 174 kiloseconds, we got seven net. And when you say 174 kiloseconds, what is that in a real unit of time that people might know? Um, an hour is 3.6 kiloseconds. All right, every telescope is different. Spitzer, when I use it, they give you time in hours. Hubble is orbits, and you have to know an orbit is 90 minutes. Chandra, because um, it gives it in kiloseconds. All right, so again, 3.6 kiloseconds is an hour. A typical small program for Chandra is 35, 36 kiloseconds, so 10 hours. X-ray photons are relatively rare, so it takes a while to collect them. So the other thing to, 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 of interest, and I should I'm going up back, back slightly, all the X-ray objects the typical X-ray astronomer looks at are really hot stars, or black holes, or supernovas, or neutron stars, binary neutron. Looking at something like a comet or a Pluto to them is absolutely absurd and ridiculous because these are cold. They so just don't, not they're not going to make X-rays. Okay. That's the reason why I gave you at the beginning that the sun is doing all the work. You need something kind of really rather hot, and it's the sun. And it's the sun either emitting, due to the fact it's magnetic reconnection, making this hot corona. And that's where the real big picture source of all the energy is from. Um, but again, you'd also need them to interact with the planets in order to make the X-rays. Okay. All right, so we're at Pluto. We have measured from the New Horizons flyby and its gas escape rate that's about a factor of 50 to 100 less than expected going in from all the models. But it's still enough to make, if only a few percent of those neutral that are escaping uh, run into solar wind ions, we get X-rays. We get the right amount. So that's fine. The problem is that if we, when we measure the solar wind coming into Pluto and the environs and, the, and into the box that we made around Pluto to count these seven X-rays, it looks like there's too few solar wind, carbon and nitrogen, oxygen, highly ionized ions, in order to make the X-rays. There just seems to be too few. But that's assuming that the solar wind just moves like a plane, ignores Pluto, just like you said, it's just moving out like a wave, and Pluto is just in, kind of just in the middle of that, and nothing happens. So we have to hypothesize that if these x-rays, you know, we got these x-rays, in order to make them, somehow the solar wind is getting densified or focused around Pluto and maybe interacting in a long tail. Well, As opposed to a normal wave on an ocean, it's like a wave on the ocean hitting a big island. Right, and just simply not changing at all. This, imagine instead you've got Pluto as a small ball in a wave. Imagine you take a ball in your hand and you're in the pool and you force it to go through the pool. You know it's going to kind of make a bow wave around mm -hmm. it, right? And that bow wave is also going to go behind it. So, and if you actually look at the paper written by McComas et al., who was the, the chief investigator for our New Horizons swap instrument, he has a picture showing a bow shock, a place where the solar wind kind of piles up in front of Pluto, about five times the radius of Pluto, and it extends in a long tail that, he could, that the New Horizons can measure out to about 100 times the radius of Pluto behind Pluto, but he can't measure any farther because New Horizons had a slant angle through the tail and then it went out of the tail again. Well, so basically our trajectory for the flyby was tailored for a lot of different things, and one of those, uh, which maybe was a happy accident, happy coincidence, uh, was that we basically flew through the tail of caused by Pluto, the magneto tail, or not magneto tail. Not, 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 even, even a neutral body without a magnetic field will gather the magnetic field lines in the, in the solar wind, and it will drape them around it, so it looks kind of like it has a very weak field. It's okay. borrowing the field from the solar wind. So the the, the stolen magneto tail, <laughs> we were able to fly through that for a while. For a while. And this is where, the, so 
And what's interesting about this is our gender X-ray observations are consistent with that tail, but not if it's 100 R Pluto long, if it's 1,000. So oh. other words, and if you actually look at the numbers in the swap paper, they were arguing from the order of, uh, of 10 to the 24, a few times 10 to the 24, uh, methanes ionized per second. I know that I just threw that number out. That's almost exactly the rate that we need in order to make our X-rays. We're very consistent with the swap, independent swap results. And this is what, remember what I said about science before? It's really nice to me when you can put a theory out there and two totally different measurements can both say, it's the same way you could kind of confirm me. And if you have an idea in your real life and somebody comes along with a totally, looking at a totally different perspective, but makes you, you know, agrees with that idea, you really feel more confident in that. Yeah, you know, well, you're, you're, you're right, or you know what's going on. And it's something that I talk a lot about in the podcast in terms of breaking those ideas. So when a pseudoscientist would want to say, well, uh, I already did a recent episode on the hollow earth or earth being flat, that kind of thing. It's like, okay, if you tug on that string, it breaks all these other completely independent and completely different strings that you now have to explain. You're coming at that from the opposite point of view of building up those strings, and you're saying you have this observation that didn't really make sense, but if you shift things around in order for it to make sense, hey, this completely independent observation actually agrees with it, and now we can explain both of them with the same mechanism. Exactly, and so when you're getting to the gist of why are the X-rays from Pluto important, besides the fact that it's just totally wacky and cool and different, for two reasons. One, we've just actually discovered the very first X-rays from a Kuiper belt up. And two is, if you follow our argument, we've just shown there there has to be a very large volume of interaction between the solar wind and neutral gas coming in from Pluto. And it seems like the only way to do that is having a long tail leading away from the sun. You know, here's Pluto and it's a long tail in the anti-solar direction. And this is exactly what SWAP saw. We just think it's a lot bigger. And that's kind of cool. And the SWAP observations and other, other observations don't rule out it being bigger. It's more you just didn't measure it. And going in, you thought it would be about 100 right. R Pluto, so 100 times this, this, uh, the radius of Pluto behind it. Um, we didn't fly through it. It was just sort of an assumption based on other things. But now if you just increase length of that, which is not ruled out by anything, no. but if you just increase the length of that, it all makes sense and it jives with another observation. I wish I could show you the picture in Macomas now, but let's just, I'm going to do it. I'm going to hold out my arm. And unless you fly straight down along my arm, you're going to, you're going to, typically you're going to just have to get an angle to my arm, right? Mm-hmm. So you're going to come in, let's say in front of my fist, and then you're going to cross and then you're going to go past my arm and you're going to be nowhere near, you're going to be way past Armville and you'll have no idea that my arm goes all the way to my shoulder, right? But you, so you maybe know as long as you know, two-thirds away to my elbow. So the point is that um, that's all we know from SWAP. But what we're saying is that my arm is a lot longer than what SWAP could measure. And again, this graphic from this paper would really help your readers. Okay, and so in that Forbes article... Listeners. Oh, listeners, I'm sorry, your listener. It's in the Forbes article I, I sent you. Okay, so I'll provide a link in the show notes to the Forbes article with pictures and, and other stuff so I don't have to violate copyright laws. Right. Now, <laughs> let me also go one farther. I'm, I'm very excited about this new detection, but if you're a good scientist, one of the things you need to do is other people or other techniques need to, to validate and confirm. So I think the next place for us to go is to take a, very, a different X-ray telescope that is now flying. It's called XMM. It's a European or an ESA. It's an ESA x-ray telescope. It is not as good an image maker as Chandra is, but it's actually a lot better, um, somewhat better at collecting x-ray photons, and it's better at making spectra. It's a spectrometer. So we're going to ask for time for it to stare at Pluto, 
because it, it won't need on the 175 kiloseconds, it's better. It probably will need maybe 50 kiloseconds. And we're going to ask it to verify. 50 and kiloseconds is 16 hours? Oh, uh, yeah, that's about right. Okay. And so, and that's not a very big program. So we've made this, um, as Carl Sagan said, extraordinary claims require extraordinary proof. You need to, or check their work, their homework is another way to I put it. I love it when real scientists quote that because people accuse skeptics of using that as a, a science stopper or a pseudoscience stopper, because I use it all the time. But I think it's nice because you're at least the second or third scientist that I've interviewed on this podcast, not this episode, but on this podcast before, who has said that exact okay. phrase. So well, really we just nice. made an important statement. They're x-rays from Pluto, and that's a... Some people would say that's a little crazy. We have members of the team here. When we first announced the detection, they were skeptical. And we spent a lot of time, before we ever submitted the paper, proving to them that they couldn't be anything due to the internal operations of the Chandra X-ray telescope, what we would call a, a, or a light leak. I'm looking at Pluto has some optical radiation, because we know it, it reflects sunlight. Um, it doesn't work. Uh, it couldn't, we worried it could be a background source, because Pluto is near the galactic center, and there's lots of... There's lots and lots of stars in the galactic center. What if it just happened? But well, we visited Pluto four different times. We had other stars we detected in the With the telescope. With the telescope. Four different times across uh, about a year, year and a half. We also had other stars that we detected in the field in the X-ray, but their signatures were all wrong. So, this, so we get the energy spectrum. The energy spectrum was all wrong. So in other words, we did a lot of kicking the tires and asking, what if this isn't Pluto emitting X-rays? What if this is something other than that? And none of it made sense. So it's all, it all seems to be coming together. But another way to prove that is if these x-rays are there, let's go look at it with another telescope. No, that makes sense. Um, so then I guess the way you've put it out there, it seems like the, the package is nice and neat. What do you think of all the headlines that we're saying, <laughs> like mysterious x-rays, you know, scientists baffled, you know, the, the classic kind of you know, clickbait type of thing? Well, a title of our paper was The Puzzling Detection of X-rays from Pluto, so maybe I'm part of the problem. But the reason it's puzzling it's your is, fault. is that we have, we're left with this assumption that there has to be this large tail. The tail fits and makes sense, but the next thing to do besides just verify this detection is we really need to get enough photons to see if we can image a tail in the X-ray. So it's That not, would be a really nice thing to do. So it's not that the very long tail, uh, a thousand are Pluto as opposed to a hundred. It's not that that violates anything. It's just this would be a weird new thing that people didn't predict and should, because of that, it should be slash needs to be validated through some independent mechanism. That would, that's the interesting part. And that's why this is quote unquote mysterious. But at the right. same time, it's not that it's unexplained or unexplainable or has to be an alien spaceship leaking radiation. <laughs> no, no, okay. that's right. And the thing is, you may also be getting the fact that I'm an, an instrumentalist and observer kind of scientist. There's other people called theorists who would say, oh, here's a model, it seems viable, and it's fine. I tend to be the kind of person that says, I don't mind a model, but I want to go out and kick the tires and show that it's reality. And so, I, so that's where, the, if you will, the puzzle is in, we have to go prove that there is a really long tail. Now, it could be that neither XM nor Chandra, with reasonable amounts of observing time, will ever get this tail, and you need the next generation X-ray telescope. So we may have set the table for one of your listeners or their kids to go out in 30 years or 20 years and go take the next biggest X-ray telescope and stare at Pluto. And if other big hyperbolic objects are also losing gas, like Pluto is, then they too should have X-ray emission and tails. All right. So that's pretty cool. 
All right, that covers most of my questions, although I did have uh, one left from the beginning from um, a listener. Ooh. Rick wanted to know, uh, just as a fun way to wrap this up, I guess. Okay. Um, what is something that people might be able to relate this to? Like, the, the intensity of the x-rays. Is it similar in intensity to, like, a medical x-ray? Um, does it modulate? Is it steady? Or is it just you can't tell anything like that? So can you tell us a little bit more, just sort of, the fun practical, like, you know, so if, 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 if when we were talking about Pluto, you know, early on we were, we were comparing things like, oh, wow, these mountains are higher than Mount Everest or whatever. Mm -hmm. So sort of a, a more intuitive idea about what these energy levels are like. No, or that's, what an you found. that's an excellent question because one of the things I've learned early on is I study comets a lot. And when you go out there and you talk about comets and you say they're, oh, comet, typical comet weighs 10 to 12 kilograms, that means nothing to the average reader. Instead, if you say, ah, a comet is about the size of an, of an Appalachian mountain, immediately people get an idea. Because they know mountains are kind of big, but they know the mountain is nowhere near as big as the Earth or the state of Maryland, where I'm from. Um, or, you know, but they're bigger than a car and they're bigger than you and me. So that gives an idea. And that's exactly what you're asking. So the energy we're talking about are these, are these um, I've mentioned 300 to 600 EV or 0.3 to 0.6 keV. That's about 300 to 500 times more energetic than a typical wavelength of light, uh, 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 photon from the sun that you're seeing the optic with your eyeballs. Okay. Um, it's what we call soft X-ray radiation. When you go and get your, at your bones or your teeth X-rayed at the uh, dentist or the doctor's, that's usually much harder because it actually has to penetrate through some of the bones, some of the softer bone. And that's actually up in the few KV. So that's a, more of a hard X-ray. That's so, what we call a hard X-ray. So in terms of energy level, you're softer than a dentist X-ray or medical. Much softer, but harder than uh, the, uh, the, the strongest UV that's ever gotten you tan. Um, so Not that, me tan. <laughs> so these X-rays would go a few, probably a millimeter, a few millimeters into your skin and stop. Okay. Okay, they wouldn't go too far, and they wouldn't be able to penetrate you too well. But they'd still, still give you cancer if you stayed out in these... Probably not a good idea, because they have enough energy to actually strip... They, the same way that they're created by electrons being grabbed, they can strip electrons off of your DNA. The way you get cancer from this kind of radiation is that these photons come in, and they create chemistry in places where chemistry shouldn't be happening in your body. They create radicals, and they mess up your DNA, and that's how you get mutations, and that's how you get aberrant cells and cancer. So my mom's motto of better living through chemistry does not always apply. Oh, stay out of the sun or something. Or <laughs> live at really low temperatures and very quietly in a basement somewhere. I suppose you could do that. Okay, but that's not a good life to live. <laughs> right, but you were also asking the other question. Right. Uh, what's so, the rate? So compared to a dentist x-rays, this is probably like a thousand times weaker than the, you know, the total amount of x-rays coming off of here is somewhere between a factor of 10 to 100. That's just from Pluto. It's, it's weak. And then put it at 33 AU from us and you're in a dentist chair. It's nothing you have to worry about. 20 years ago, I told you the story over lunch. When we found first found x-rays from comets, I was written by one lady who asked me, should I stay inside when there's a comet up in the sky? Because she'd actually gone, she didn't know, she'd actually gone from regression, okay, comets emit x-rays. X-rays are, are bad for you because of cancer. Will I actually get affected by x-rays from comets? So you can see your logic, and that was fine. And the answer was, you would if they were really, really bright sources, and they're not particularly bright, and they're not right next to the Earth. So no, you don't have to worry about it. The x-rays, not only the dental x-ray is worse, but also we're sitting here, we're sitting on cement, and we're sitting rock behind us. There's what we call natural background radiation. We're getting a little bit of x-rays right now and gamma rays. Small, but finite, and it's much more than the comet would give you, or Pluto will give you at 33 AU. Okay. Uh, so I guess 
it all depends on how far away you are. It's really hard to say anything about mm -hmm. an exposure otherwise. If you ever had an easy bake oven, I'm the exposure. I do a lot of infrared. So imagine the light bulb. When you're right on top of the light bulb, it's really hot. Right. As you move away from the light bulb, it feels cooler and cooler and cooler. And so that's just simply the fact that the, the photon, the radiation is getting uh, diluted as you get one over our squared as you go farther and farther away. Okay. Uh, and does it modulate at all, or is it a steady signal, or you just didn't observe it long enough? I mean, the thing about, at least from what I remember from my intro astronomy classes, when we talked about observing at all different kinds of wavelengths, and each thing is, is unique, is that x-rays are really hard to detect because they go through your detector more often than they actually get detected by it, right. and that x-rays are, are so hard to detect that usually... It, they're so rare in your detector that you can name them. Like the <laughs> Alfred X-ray. <laughs> we actually named our seven X-rays for people on the team. So, so you actually only found with Sandra over your many, many hours, right. you, you detected seven photons. Right. You've asked a good question. For other sources, when I look at a comet that's one AU from us, it's near the sun, near the Earth, we get, usually get thousands of X-rays. Thousands. Okay. okay, so we have thousands, and that's still small enough that it's, you could look through the phone book of a small town and name them all, but the point is there's enough so you can actually make what we call a light curve, which is to look for variability over time. Seven photons over 174 kiloseconds, <laughs> there isn't enough photons, to, it would be what we call stochastic, it's going to look like noise. Um, imagine, if you will, a sine wave, a beautiful sine wave, and, and let's say it goes through multiple, and the Pluto-Sharon um, couple, they orbit every, they rotate every 6.4 days. Yep. You can imagine, um, so let's say you look at a sine wave and you've got a sine wave that's got 10 cycles in it, but I only let you bake 10 discrete points in that sine wave. It's going to be hard for you to figure out how many wiggles it's doing from just 10 points. If okay. I gave you a million points so you could describe the wiggles very exactly. So the, pro the answer to your question is that it's possible it's varying, but we just don't have the data right now to say that. And it's a good question. We've actually seen an X-ray light curve from a comet Enki We've seen it modulate at the 11-hour rotation period. And that's cool. probably due to the fact that the Enki has um, asymmetric gassing from its surface. So there are some parts that were, will emit more neutral gas and run in the solar wind better, and other parts that won't. And by the way, there's a model, which I'm going to show tomorrow, of Pluto and Charon rotate every 6.4 hours, days, excuse me, every 6.4 days. And this is a model from a young man named William Hoey at University of Texas. And he argues the neutral gas from Pluto doesn't just, the escape molecules don't just freely flow and escape. They get focused somewhat by, by Charon. And then they escape. So what you can imagine is if you look down on Pluto and Charon from the front or from the top, what you'll see is kind of a spiral. Charon will kind of focus the gas. <laughs> so this tail I was talking about, which originally maybe in the picture was thinking before we had this conversation or saw Hoey's model, was it just kind of a column or it's maybe kind of a, you know, it's a, it's a almost like a cylinder or kind of a flared cylinder mm -hmm. and just going back. But imagine instead that the flared cylinder may actually have, look like a helix. And so as stuff goes around, as Pluto and Sharon go around, so it isn't, it isn't just a solid cylinder. It's actually got, it's kind of a spiral that's going back in a long tube, if you see what I'm trying to say. I think so. It's because Pluto orbits the sun, plus Pluto and Sharon orbit around a common barycenter, so... Right. Pluto and Sharon almost wobble around their orbital path. Well, that's not, no, I'm going to say a little different. Oh, so Pluto, okay. just imagine Pluto's alone. It's going to lose some gas. Yes. And the solar wind will help it uh, stream away from it in a tail down away from Pluto. Okay. So an anti-solar direction. Now, if you add Sharon, Sharon is going to, the gas that escapes from Pluto 
it doesn't just go out in all directions evenly. A lot it gets kind of it kind of goes by by Poot Sharon first, and some of it gets dumped okay. on the poles. So what it looks like is that rather than being what we call isotropic emission into all you know all directions, it actually gets kind of focused towards Sharon. And since Sharon, if you sit fit, have Pluto fixed, Sharon goes around in a circle every 6.4 days. You can imagine that the excess, well, most of the neutral gas, goes with wherever Sharon is. Okay, so, so Sharon's almost acting as a as a, so, a sink. Yeah. So or, 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 as a, or as a directional a, a, an attractor. Yes, and then the stuff okay. some of it gets dumped on Sharon, the rest escapes. Okay. So you could, you can imagine is that this isotrope or this this just bar or cylinder instead has actually got a spiral structure. So and, and then you have to ask the question: How did swap go through that spiral structure? We don't know. It could be that it measured less than there if it went through an undense part, or it could be it went through. Anyway, you get the idea. It may be a little more complicated, but this is why you do science. And the very first observations are typically lead you to simple models and ideas, and you may have to revisit them. Wow, and listeners of the podcast should uh, recognize that, because I say that all the time, ah. too. Oh, well. We start with a simple thing, and then we add layers of complexity as the data warrant it. If they require it, because uh, and require certainly it. you want to start with the simplest answer. I mean, I use Occam's razor. It's not proof, but you would think that the simplest answer, and be it in life, be it in science or physics or chemistry, is usually the place to start because it can often be right. I mean, why build a – I'm reminded of a famous quote from an engineering text when I was undergraduate. It's Basically, it goes as, with seven adjustable parameters, you can fit a charging rhino. And the point is that if you have a model that's got all the bells and whistles and knobs and things you can turn and you can adjust, you can fit anything in the universe, but you may not learn anything because you've just set these arbitrary values. We have the same issue right now with craters with certain things, which I don't need to get into for this. But, you know, it's basically, you know, Newton's law of gravity works really, really, really well until you push it to the extremes. And then you need something a little more complicated. So we, hopefully we're ending up, but I want to say is, oh, there's a bus going by. I'm, um, I'm, I mentioned I'm 54, but I find the universe a fascinating place. I love the discovery and the exploration. I still have my sense of wonder. But at the same time, I hope I'm You're not like going to... Like a little boy. Well, <laughs> I think it's fantastic, all the stuff we get to explore. We get paid to do this. But at the same time... Thank you, taxpayers. I just, just actually thank you all the listeners who are interested in NASA science and space science, because you, we can't do it without your support. But I guess what I want to say, I'm not trying to be a commercial uh, uh, item here. What I want to say is that, again, while you can imagine infinite numbers of ideas, and it would be wonderful to have a warp drive or this or that, even with the restrictions on, you know, this doesn't work or this doesn't happen in the real world, it's still such an incredibly varied and, and fantastic universe. We have so much to learn. It's just cool what is out there and we're figuring out. No, I, I completely agree, and I think that that is a great ending for this. Um, thank so thank you, Dr. Liss. Did I pronounce your name correctly? Lissy? No, Dr. Liss is fine. Doc, okay. Thank you, Dr. Stu. No, or Dr. Dr. Robin? Now, people call me Dr. Stu for some Dr. Stu? Yes. Or Dr. Robbins. Or Stewart. Which do you prefer? I don't care. I know you don't like Stewie. No. Stewie's, no. I think not, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no. I'm doc, well, Dr. Stu's kind of cool. I like it. Well, whatever you prefer, because that's the important thing. So thank you, whatever you prefer. Uh, that works. <laughs> But actually, I, I, I appreciate the fact most people get my last name wrong. Dr. Liss is fine. You just agree. Okay. And I'm very glad to help, and I hope that people, if they're interested, they can ask more questions or contact us about the, the science involved. Thank you for listening, and you can find this podcast on the usual social media websites as well as podcast.sjrdesign.net, also on iTunes and Stitcher. And if you liked it, please rate it on your podcast provider service of choice.